0: Last week, Pastor Stephen finished up our sermon series in the book of Song of Songs, which is, I hope and believe, it was a blessing for me. I trust that it was all for you. I'm very thankful for um, Stephen and his leadership in our church. Thankful for sermon series in Song of Songs. And uh, today, we're continuing our study through the book of Philippians, which is where we're going to be all of July. We started two weeks ago, and uh, today we're going to Do the rest of part of chapter one. Today we're going to be in Philippians 1 12 to 26. And to start this morning, I I want to talk about a person. um, You may have heard of him. Uh, He's actually a Seattle native, um, so I'm sure that you've heard of him. His name is Bill Gates. And uh, he's the multi million, multi billionaire philanthropist, co founder of the tech giant Microsoft, that guy. Bill Gates. Um, Now, back in my day, which for some of you, you weren't born yet. For some of you, you were my current age back in my day. But back in my day, uh, Bill Gates was what some people would call a nerd, which was, back in my day, synonymous with the word loser. Nerds were losers. If you were tech savvy, you were a nerd. To be tech-savvy meant that you were kind of a loser. Until it didn't mean that anymore. Now it's all the nerds who are on top, right? It's all those losers who are sending us into space and making cyber trucks and providing us with the machines that we do most of our work on and the little computers that we can't take our eyes off that fit in our pockets. Those guys are on top. Apparently nowadays... If I understand things correctly, apparently you're a loser if you're not tech savvy or you don't have your own youtube channel. that makes you a loser um, so the question that presents us that's before us this morning is what about the apostle paul is uh is paul a loser uh Because, I mean, according to what we're going to read this morning, it it really does seem like Paul is a total, total loser. He's a social outcast in Roman society, uh, been shamefully pinned as a prisoner, a criminal. He's stuck in prison for loyalty to a supposed Jewish criminal who claimed to be God but was publicly stripped naked and crucified. That guy's a loser. And, uh, and the Philippians, who Paul's writing to, are, they're not much better, are they? Um, they've linked arms with at least two criminals Paul and Jesus. Total losers. Not just socially, right? But they're giving their lives to follow this Jesus person, and it's getting them into all sorts of trouble. Like, just what a waste. What a waste of a life! They're missing out. What losers! Most of what I just said, Paul seems to disagree with, and to be honest, I I, I do too. Um, I don't think these guys are losers. And this morning, we're gonna explore this idea in our text through our big idea, which is Christians are not losers. That's our big idea. Christians are not losers. Um, And we're going to explore this in three parts. Um, And and I'll name them now, and then we'll go through them together. But the, the big idea is Christians are not losers because, number one, what our God is doing cannot be shackled. Number two, what really matters to us is secure. And number three, whatever happens, we are rich. Christians are not losers because what our God is doing cannot be shackled. And, and, and we're going to see this in chapter 1, verses 12 through the first part of verse 18. We'll read it together. Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, Paul begins the, the body of this letter by addressing the issue that's on the forefront of the Philippians' minds. Um, <clears throat> remember, two weeks ago, we, we discussed the fact that the Philippians and Paul had this super close relationship. They, the, the, the Philippians, uh, the, the church in Philippi started by Paul when he went there in Acts 16, and, and then they immediately started supporting Paul as a missionary from, from the first day. And they've heard that Paul's in prison, and so they sent one of their own, his name's Epaphroditus. Uh, We'll see him in chapter 2. They sent Epaphroditus to check in on Paul and see how he's doing. And Paul's now sent Epaphroditus back with this letter, it would seem. And so the Philippians are wondering, well, how's Paul? Like, what's going on with him? And so Paul lets them know how he is, sort of. As one author put it, instead of telling the Philippians about himself, he, Paul actually tells the Philippian believers about the gospel. Uh, how the gospel is progressing, how the gospel's doing, how the gospel's flourishing, irrespective of Paul's circumstances. See, one would be apt to think, the, the, especially the Philippians, oh, great. Our beloved Paul is in prison, uh, he's chained up. This is not good. Like everything that we want to see happening, everything that we're sacrificing our lives for and that Paul is sacrificing his life for, people coming to know Jesus and the preaching of the gospel and God's whole plan to save sinners and restore all of creation, it's failing. I mean, just think of what the Philippians themselves are going through. They are facing disunity in their church. They're facing if it's not presently active, at least threats of false teaching, which would undermine their faithfulness to Christ, facing persecution, probably flogging and being thrown in jail. These are all things which circumstantially would say, God is not winning. But look at what Paul says. What has happened to me has really, has actually served To advance the gospel, not thwart it. But this has actually served to advance the gospel. Well, we see in verses 13 and 14, at least two things. One, he says that the whole imperial guard and others where Paul's located, wherever Paul's located in prison, the the prison guards, basically, and, and a bunch of other people have come to find out that the real reason Paul's in prison is because of Christ. Because of his faithfulness to Jesus. But also, other believers where Paul's at, having witnessed Paul's boldness for Christ, like the fact that he's willing to be so in your face about Jesus that he would go to jail. Other believers are seeing Paul's faithfulness, his boldness to the gospel, and now they're emboldened. They're even more bold, like Paul, to share the gospel and stand confidently for Jesus. It's, it's, it's awoken that in them. And then there's more. In verses 15 through 17, we see that Paul's adverse circumstances aren't only that he's in prison, right? So he's saying, listen, the the gospel is actually being advanced by my circumstances. First, I'm in prison, but here's the effects. This is actually good. But there's another adverse circumstance in verses 15 through 17. There are, we don't know, Paul doesn't give us all the details, so I'm not going to speculate. But I might speculate a little bit. Um. Apparently, according to Paul, there were some others who, in their legitimate preaching of the gospel, are somehow seeking to, in doing so, bring disrepute or harm or more adversity to Paul while he's in prison. So these are others who are preaching the correct gospel, but they're doing it, as Paul says, with selfish motives. Maybe they're thinking that, great, now that Paul's in prison, I can gain a following of my own, right? That sort of a thing. And again, how does Paul respond? Look at verse 18. He says, basically, he says, so what? Like, Jesus is being proclaimed. Whether their motives are right or wrong, what I care most about is the gospel going out. And that's what's happening. See, what, what we see Paul doing here for the Philippians is reframing his not-so-great circumstance so that they see, so that we see, that regardless of those circumstances, God is still working. Paul wants the Philippians' eyes, he, he, I think, would want our eyes to be lifted up from the narrow and limited perspective of our current circumstances to see the bigger theological picture that God is at work God is driving his plan of redemption forward, and so as one author claimed, nothing, not even chains, can chain God and his gospel. Or as our beloved Aaron Sherwood, as I was talking to him about this text this week, said, God's winning. God is winning. He's not failing. Paul's circumstances aren't thwarting God's plan, as if God is that small. If you're a Christian this morning, the reality is, what what this says is that you're on the winning team. God has no problem subverting evil, flipping evil on its head, flipping adverse circumstances on its head in order to bring about his good purposes. You see that most blatantly in the cross. God flipping evil on its head to bring about his good purposes. And gracious purposes. And we see that here with Paul. Regardless for us, regardless of whatever adverse circumstances we find ourselves in this morning, whether you're discouraged about the promises of God, whether you're facing social rejection at work because of your faithfulness to Jesus, whether you're enduring relational struggles in your marriage and in other relationships, maybe even with other believers. What really matters is really happening. God is bringing about the restoration of all things. And he's calling broken, sinful, marred people to himself. Conforming them into the image of his son. God is causing us to grow as a church. He is driving us to the future day of the consummation of all things. That is happening whether you think it is or not. Nothing can stop that. And the thing is, is that it's actually happening even in the midst of adversity. That's what we see happening in Paul's life. God is subverting the adverse circumstances in your life for his good purposes to advance his cause in the world and to bring us to that final day of redemption and the restoration of all things. And that truth, this truth, unwavering commitment of God to bring about restoration even through adversity that reality what that calls us to what that bids us to is for us to calibrate our eyes it calls us to calibrate our eyes to be on the lookout for the working of God's good gospel purposes in the midst of life's circumstances my um my parents. Uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia. My, my parents were in town recently, and they brought some books for my kids um, that were my books when I was a kid. I don't know why they still have these books, but when I was a kid, and I think, and and they still make books like this. they are these I Spy books, and you open them up, and they have these really just jumbled mess of pictures. But you're given tasks to find certain objects that are sometimes really, really hard to find and you can't find them. And uh, so when you're initially paging through this book and I'm paging through it with my kids, um, some things are really hard to find. But once you find it, you can't unsee it. And so these books, while great and entertaining, they, they only last so long because once you've found everything... You just go through the book and find it again. It's that easy. My, my, my point is is that as you're reading these books and finding the, the task, finding the thing in the big jumbled mess that you're supposed to find, your eyes are being calibrated to pick up something on the page. And I think what we see Paul doing here is, is emulating for us the way that we should be thinking through our lives calibrating our eyes to notice how God is working, but not just how he's working, the the reality that in the midst of all of life's circumstances, God is working out the restoration of all things, and that is always happening. Calibrating our eyes looks like intentionally looking for what God is teaching you about patience and contentment when you're frustrated because your little kids keep getting up at 5 a.m. True story. It's having eyes to see how God can use the death of a loved one to provide opportunities to share the hope that we have in Christ. It's seeing how God might be using your struggles with anxiety to draw you into trusting him in deeper ways. What this text Begins, one of the first things that it teaches us is that whatever might be going on in your life today, though it might seem like you're a loser, if you're a Christian, you are not a loser. <laughs> what our God is doing cannot be stopped. And it is not chained up, it is not shackled, no matter the circumstance. And we are on his side. You are not a loser. If you claim Christ today, continuing, we we see the second point is that what really matters to us is secure. If we look at one eighteen, so again, Paul's been talking about how the gospel is going forward and God is moving even in the midst of his adverse circumstances. And so, what we see in verse eighteen is Paul says, "So what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that." I rejoice, and then he continues, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The fact that God's work cannot be stopped is made even more significant by what Paul says here. Paul is rejoicing, He's not just enduring these situations that he's in. He is rejoicing in these situations because of something. Not because he knows I'm getting out, not because he feels comfortable, but because he knows that God is at work in the world. And I don't think what is happening here is that Paul's just living in some cheesy denial of reality. Paul's not trying to sugarcoat things and put on a fake smile and just. Be positive. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul knows that his circumstances aren't great, and the Philippians know it as well. They're highly concerned about him. But what this does start to reveal is that Paul's contentment is not dictated by his circumstance, nor is his value system calibrated by his own comfort, freedom, or social standing. Rather, what is of key importance to Paul, like what brings Paul joy above and beyond his own needs and his own circumstances, is the advancement of God's purposes in the world. And then we see in verses 19 and 20, Paul says that he will continue to rejoice. That's, it doesn't end. He will continue to rejoice. And, 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 we, and what we see is that his rejoicing is not limited to the progress of the gospel in the world, but also the progress of the gospel in his own life. That he will one day be saved and that Jesus will be glorified and honored through his life. So specifically, he states in verse 19 that he knows confidence, right? He knows that through the prayer, the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit that Um, that that their prayers will bring to him and, and the help that the Spirit will bring to him. That this situation that he finds himself in will work out for his deliverance, verse 19. Or the word could be translated salvation. And this is connected to, in verse 20, his eager expectation and hope that regardless of whether Paul is killed or freed from prison, whether he lives or whether he dies, after he is tried by the Roman government, Paul is confident that he will not be ashamed when standing trial but that Jesus will be glorified and honored through his life. It is as if Paul is saying, who cares that I am in prison and I might die? God will save me. I'm going to heaven. And Jesus will be honored through my life or death. Paul here is an example to all of us to remind us, possibly reorient us, to exhort us, to remember what is really important for us as Christians. This is not to say that nothing else is important aside from our salvation and the advancement of God's good purposes in the world. This is not to say that nothing else is important, right? God truly does care about our lives, He graciously grants us comfort and peace and provision. The question is is my contentment so hitched to those things? that the advancement of God's good purposes in the world and the joy of salvation so fade into the recesses of my life that they aren't tangible anymore. In the midst of life's varied circumstances, right, whether we're in the valley or on the top of a mountain, that which really matters for us as Christians is not ultimately Our satisfaction in horizontal circumstances, but God's glory, the advancement of the gospel, and the hope that we have that one day we will stand vindicated before God, saved by Him. And the amazing thing that we see in our text is not only do we see Paul's source of rejoicing in the midst of these circumstances and his attempt to reorient the perspective and the priorities of the Philippians. But we also see that Paul's confident that that which he rejoices in is secure. It's assured. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to be shaken. It will come. It's not going to be upset or revoked. As we already saw in the first few verses of our text today, God is seeing his work through to the end, regardless of our circumstances. But then also, in verses 19 to 20, we see that Paul is confident that God will save him and will keep him to the end. How? Through the prayer support of his brothers and sisters in Philippi and the help of the Holy Spirit that will be given to him as a result of their prayers. So I think there's a lot we could say in verses 19 and 20 about application with regards to God's way of keeping us, one of the ways that God keeps us is is through our praying for each other. Um, One of the ways that he keeps us faithful to him to the end is through our support of each other. But I think the larger point here is that the things which are of great significance to the Christian, the fulfillment of God's good gospel purposes in the world and in our lives, those things are secure and they're assured they aren't going anywhere and they will be completed and that means that just like paul though you could be having the worst day of your life if you are a christian you can simultaneously be having in a very strange and supernatural way the best day your car may have broken down but god is using it in, god is using it in some way In your life to bring about his purposes. And that is cause for rejoicing. Or maybe you're like the Philippians. There's disunity in some relationships in the church. False teaching threatens you in your faithfulness to Christ. I, I think that's a constant threat for us in the world that we live in. There's the heartbreaking reality that the culture around you hates your commitment to Christ, and they may cause harm to you socially, but also physically. But then, what Paul's saying here is that, well, but we know in the midst of all of that, that the gospel is going out. People are coming to faith and being saved from their sin. God is committed to bringing you home to himself, and he will keep you to that day. That is cause for joy. That is cause for contentment. So, brothers and sisters, whatever your circumstances are, that your life may fall apart because you're a Christian. You are not a loser. What really matters to you is secure, and it's not going anywhere. But that's not all. We also see that for Christians, whatever happens, whatever happens to us, we're rich. That's point three. Verse 21 says this. in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. As we move into verses 21-26 through the the question that Paul seems to be answering with these verses is this. um, How can Paul be sure that Jesus will be glorified in him either through his life or through his death? How can that be a cause for rejoicing? So how is verse 20 true? And the answer is in verse 21. For Paul... His whole life was oriented around following and looking like Jesus. And because of that, dying is only a plus. It means he gets rich. He goes to be with Jesus. He gets heaven. And as we saw in verses 23 through 26, then, he, he basically starts explaining what he says in verse 21. So, if in verse 21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He then kind of starts fleshing that out in verses 23 through 26. And we see that Paul starts speaking as if he has a choice in the matter as to whether he's going to live or die, which he doesn't. He's been talking about this with some insecurity. But he, he, he does this. He speaks in this way to communicate a certain message and and, and to communicate a certain confidence and boldness about what truly motivates him and runs his life. He claims, verse 22, that if he keeps on living, well, great, that means fruitful labor for me. He can keep on serving Christ and advancing the gospel, but, verses 23 and 23, he's stuck in a hard place because uh, part of him would rather just die and go be with Jesus because that's so much better But he also knows that it would be good for him to continue to stick around, verse 24, for the continued growth of the Philippians, verses 25 and 26. The point is is this. Paul, in living, lives like Jesus. Go to chapter 2, and I'm not going to be surprised if we go to this text every time we're in Philippians, because it really is the center of the book. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, Paul says this, he says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, he's telling the Philippians to have, to emulate Jesus. Who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Paul, in living, lives a life like Jesus. If you notice in our verses, Paul says that he chooses, just like Jesus chose. He chooses to set aside his own desire to die and be with Christ in order that he might stay and do what's necessary for the Philippians and serve them and sacrifice himself for their spiritual progress and edification. And this is what Paul is going to call the Philippians to next week. But what I want us to notice in addition to that, is that because Paul's life is completely oriented around Jesus, this is why he says whether he lives or he dies, in Paul's mind, the outcome is good. No matter what, it's all good. So notice he says, if I continue in the flesh, that means, he says, he doesn't just say labor, it is laborious. It is sacrifice. But he says that it's fruitful labor. And that, well, but for me to die, that would just be gain because I get to go be with Jesus. In other words, in living for Christ, there is a harvest. And in dying for Christ, he becomes wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. And what we see going on in Paul's life here is really just simply the effects of God's saving work in somebody's life. God created us for his own glory and his own purposes for himself. And in that is our greatest good. And yet somehow in our sin, in, in humans in our sin, we have this satanic idea that to serve God and to exist for his purposes and for God to be king instead of me, well, that's a life of a loser. That's a life of missing out. And yet even despite our folly, God not only comes to us through his son to save us if we put our faith and trust in him. Not only does he reorient the lives of those that he saves around his purposes for our own benefit. Not only does he bring us back to why we were created. But he also in the gospel in the message of Jesus Christ, in what we just read in chapter 5 about Jesus, he gives us the example of Jesus, who was submitted to the Father, and though this meant sacrifice, it also led to glory. And I think this is what we see working out in Paul's life right here, when he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is fruit. It's full of fruit, man. Harvest. Plenty. Plenty abundance. And for me to die it's just gain. The point for us is this. The Christian life is one of living and dying for Jesus. And the life that we live as Christians is a rich life. The life of living like Jesus, setting aside our own agendas and selfish desires and interests for the sake of others. The life of giving ourselves for the spiritual benefit and growth of those around us in our church. The, the life of setting aside our own lives to give of our time and finances and energy and emotions to see the gospel furthered. The, the life of inviting our neighbors into our homes, even when it's inconvenient, to share God's love with them. The life of going out of our way to intentionally teach our children God's truth. The life of selling, maybe, maybe even selling all that we have, and moving overseas to share the love of Jesus with those who don't know him. That, in God's eyes, in God's economy, that is a life full of fruit. That is a plentiful life. But that's not all. It doesn't just end there. Even our death is rich, right? Our death procures for us and produces the greatest and largest deposit in our lives that we could ever imagine. Death is a foe, but in this sense it is a friend. For when we die, we gain Jesus. When we die, it's in that moment that we will behold him face to face. We will be embraced in the arms of the one who gave his life for us so that we might be forever with him. It's in that moment that all of our tears and sorrows fears and pain will be forever wiped away to return no more that's the day that our spiritual bank account overflows with no end in sight the point is if you are a christian here today whatever happens to you whether you walk out this door and keep living on this earth for another 80 years or whether you die tomorrow you have been unified with christ And for you to live as Christ and to die as gain, you are not a loser. You are not missing out. You are rich. Whatever happens to you. Earlier this year, I had my lens prescription updated for the first time in about five years. Uh, And let me tell you, it was needed. Uh, I, I... I don't remember how often I was, but I was getting headaches, and I didn't know why. I was like, maybe I need to drink more water. Emily's always telling me I need to drink more water. I probably need to drink more water. But all of a sudden, when I had my new glasses on, at first it was jarring, because the optometrist told me I have an astigmatism, and it's gotten worse, and so, and then my vision's gotten, everything's just gotten worse. So when I put on a new set of glasses after almost five years of not changing my prescription, it was jar. It took like a week for me to get used to the new prescription. But now all of a sudden I can like see the veining and leaves again, and and my headaches are gone. (laughs) Um, my perspective was shifted and and it changed. It improved. I think what this passage shows us so, shows us this morning is that we need we need we desperately need God's word to be the lens through which we view our lives as Christians. We need it to constantly be affecting our hearts and our eyes, affecting our priorities and our perspective. Because though it may seem like we are losers sometimes and sometimes the life of a Christian is the life of a loser in one sense, According to God, though, those of us who are unified with Jesus are truly victorious. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have unified us with your Son, and that in him we are victorious. You are winning. Pray that you would encourage us with these truths today. We pray this in your name for your glory. Amen.